The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. Well, uh, I would like to invite you to open up to Genesis 34. Genesis 34. Uh, and as you are opening back up to Genesis, I'd like to uh, say that I'm uh, pleased to be back and, and back in the pulpit especially. I'd like to thank the elders for covering, especially two weeks ago, and especially Mick for preaching two weeks ago, and then George Salne for preaching last week. Uh, and, uh, but I'm uh, thankful to be back, uh, thankful to be returning to the book of Genesis. And as you go to the book of Genesis, chapter 34, uh, we are returning back with a real doozy here, folks. I mean, a real doozy of a chapter, uh, if you happen to peek ahead and look at it, or uh, as I read it this morning, uh, you will find this to be one of those texts that makes a preacher, I mean, really sweat. So uh, if you're interested to, to, to see that, you'll, you'll see it this morning for sure, uh, but we're returning back to Genesis 34. Now, so it's been something of a month since we were last in the book of Genesis, uh, last in the pages of Genesis, ahead of Palm Sunday even. So we were the entire month of April since we've been uh, in Genesis. And we're considering the life of the second and third generation patriarchs, namely Isaac and Jacob. But to be fair, th this series of texts is really paying more attention to Jacob. Uh, we have seen Jacob's life. Uh, we've seen his characteristic manipulation, how Jacob regularly and routinely gets himself into trouble uh, and God's mercy sees him through the trouble that he creates. Jacob is a man who has received revelation from God and the promise of God's covenant, the covenant of the Lord God Almighty, that God will be God to Jacob and to the generations of Jacob's family because it is the same covenant promise given to Abraham, Jacob's grandfather, and to Isaac, Jacob's father, and now given to Jacob himself, but as we look at Jacob's life, and listen, I have to acknowledge to you, Jacob is a real scoundrel in, in the Bible. He just is. He's a challenging figure for us as we approach someone who we think who should have everything put together, and he doesn't. Someone who should know every right step to take and every right word to say, and he doesn't. Jacob is a man who has to come into his own as he embraces God's covenant from the heart. And he does it through a lot of fits and starts, a lot of peaks and valleys. But among some of the highlights here, I just want to look back very quickly before we read our text to bring you up to Genesis 34 here, because if you go back into Genesis 28, just momentarily, go back to Genesis 28, uh, one of the high points of Jacob's life uh, is the revelation that he receives from God that we so often refer to as Jacob's Ladder, where God gives him the verbal promise of the covenant and says, Jacob, I am with you and will attend to you and I will bring you back to this place. But look specifically at Genesis 28, verse 19, when Jacob called the place Bethel, meaning the house of God. Jacob is a man who has met with God, received God's word and promise. He is a man who knows God and who is following God, but with great struggle. Jacob was on his way away from home at this point. He went into a far-off land where he met a, a wife, really ended up with two wives. If you go forward into Genesis 31, Genesis 31 and verse 13, God comes to him and says, 
I am the God of Bethel, meaning I am the God who met you in the place of that revelation, Jacob's ladder. Genesis 31, 13 says, I am the God of Bethel. Now arise, go out from this land, and return to the land of your kindred. See, Jacob was a sojourner. He was home, he left home, and he found a wife, and God calls him to go back home. Genesis 31, 13. Return to the land of your kindred. Forward now into Genesis 33, Jacob was on the way home, left Laban's homeland. He's coming back home. The very end of Genesis 33, where we were just ahead of Palm Sunday, Genesis 33, 18 says that Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is about a day's journey from Bethel. So hear this by way of context. Jacob met with God at Bethel and was sent further out. God called him to go back to Bethel, and Jacob was on the way, except he stopped about 20 miles short of where God called him to go. In other words, Jacob is not where he is supposed to be. And it will lead to, let me warn you, in this chapter... Rape, degeneration, treachery, genocide, and blasphemy in Genesis 34. It's a doozy of a chapter, as I said. And because Jacob is not where God called him to be, and not where Jacob promised he would go in obedience to God's call, he stops short. Let's pray together and ask God's blessing upon the Scriptures and we'll hear it together. Gracious God, we turn now to Your Word, believing that here You speak to us, that we, being pilgrims on the way, are in need of encouragement and help. And so, Lord, we turn now to Your Word, the living Word, believing that here You speak to us, that by faith Your Spirit so speaks Your very living words to us. So, Lord, give us ears to hear. Give us a heart to receive and give us a mind that is illuminated by that same Spirit to see the truth that You would teach us here. So, Father, speak for Your servants. Listen by Your Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now God's Word. Genesis 34, under the heading, The Defiling of Dinah. This is the Word of God. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamer, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard it. And the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter. For such a thing must not be done. But Hamer spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us. And take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us, and the land shall be open to you. 
dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully, because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you, that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. Their words pleased Hamer and Hamer's son Shechem, and the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of the city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it, for behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives. Let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people. When every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised, Will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamer and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. On the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure, and killed all the males." They killed Hamer and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds and their donkeys and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, all that was in the houses, they captured and plundered. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, Should he treat our sister like a prostitute? Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades. The Word of God abides forever. So keep your Bible open, uh, and we'll see God's Word to us today. Uh, Even though I warned you here now, uh, you might still be wondering... Just what in the world does a chapter like this have to do belonging in our Bibles? What what in the world is all of this about? From beginning to end of Genesis 34, there's not a single good thing here. All is wicked and all is evil. And the thing to pay attention to here is that here are the sons of Jacob from Leah. Jacob's less favored wife. Remember, he wanted Rachel, and he got Leah first by Laban's deceit. And this is the story of Leah's children by Jacob, and the story especially of Jacob's only daughter, who is violated, to be sure, and whose brothers enact genocidal vengeance in retribution upon those who violated and all their city. You may wonder again, what in the world? 
You didn't, you maybe didn't even know there were things like this in the Bible. But what this is here for, importantly in the narrative, in the big picture, is actually uh, quite significant because this tension between the sons of Jacob by Leah is actually setting up the narrative that will flow past Jacob because it is these sons, Jacob's least favored, whose decision it becomes to sell Joseph into slavery. These brothers especially, who would have killed Joseph, but who were talked out of killing him to just sell him into slavery, who then Joseph goes down into Egypt, goes down into Potiphar's household, rises in prominence essentially to be the prime minister of Egypt and essentially to rescue the entire ancient Near East and subdue the people of Egypt for the sake of the people of God, eventually to be led out of the Exodus. And all of that narrative is set up by these events, actually, and the tension that's in Jacob's household. What happens in this chapter sets up that forward-looking narrative. Nevertheless, all of the details of it are, again, I say, wicked. Wicked, to be sure. Nevertheless, still Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for the Christian believer. Useful for the Christian believer. So, let me ask you, what is useful for your Christian life out of Genesis 34? We should ask that question. What is useful for your Christian life coming out of Genesis 34? And Lord willing, we'll get to that place, but not before we kind of come face to face with the wicked evils of this chapter. So there are two overarching themes I think we should say about this chapter. And these two themes seemingly come into a headlong collision into one another, but we have to be honest about both of them. There is both utter disgrace in this chapter, and there is also sheer grace in this chapter. Disgrace and grace in collision in Genesis 34. There is the disgrace of the appalling spiritual failure of the patriarch Jacob, and there is the wonder of the mercy of God's covenant grace. Let's see both of those things. So first of all, the disgrace of Jacob. This is a chapter recounting his utter spiritual failure. Now the first and most obvious indication of this comes right away in verse 1. Uh, with the behavior of his daughter, Dinah. Now, D Dinah is only one girl among all of Jacob's children, and Dinah, again, is the daughter of his first and unloved wife, Leah. It seems that Jacob pays little to no attention to Leah's children, especially to Leah's daughter, Dinah, the only daughter. Now, here in Shechem, Dinah is pushing the edges of the accepted practice of women in this time when she, in verse 1, says went out to see the women of the land. Went out to see the women of the land. Now this, this verb here, see, means to inspect. It doesn't just mean to look. It means to look into and be informed about and to be made aware of, to consider and inspect. Uh, Dinah is going out to the women of a new culture and saying, I wonder how these women live. We could also assume then, she's also curious, how do the men of this culture Live And if we're going to get honest into the culture of the ancient Near East century of this text, we should say that typically girls of marriageable age, we should assume that Dinah is a teenager or younger, that girls 
uh, would not leave the tents of their people, would not leave the encampments of their families and wander out into the wider world, especially not without a chaperone or a protector, for good and obvious reason, as becomes plain, doesn't it? It's likely the case that Dinah's mother, Leah, is unaware of her going out. In a sense, Dinah is sneaking out, as preteens or teenagers may be given to do. But the focus actually on the text isn't on Dinah's motivation, it seems, but rather on Jacob's indifference to his own daughter. This is a tragic failure in spiritual parenting as responsibility for the children's protection, responsibility for the children's well-being is given especially to the father, to Jacob. It was Jacob's place to protect his only daughter, and he doesn't. Dinah is overlooked, perhaps. She is dissatisfied with her own way of life and went out to see how everybody else lives. She is looking, perhaps, for affection. She is not finding in her own family, which is a tragedy in and of itself that we could spend a lot of time thinking about. But again, that's not the primary point of the text. However, we should land here to say so that one commentator makes this point very clearly, that one of Jacob's failures as a man of God and as a parent is that he has not taught his children that the children of God are not called to live primarily by sight. This detail that Dinah goes out to see is important because the people of God do not live primarily on the basis of what they see, but should live on the basis of what they hear from God. What they hear from God in His Word. That reality is not governed by the movements and attitudes and changing dispositions of the wider culture. Reality, real reality, is not defined by what you can go out and see online or go out and peer as you look around the world, but real reality for the people of God is defined in accord with God's Word. And Dinah should have been instructed by Jacob to live by hearing, not by sight only. If we live only by what we see rather than what we hear from God's Word, we will not be blessed. We should teach our children to live by the hearing of God's Word because God's Word is what defines reality for us. That's a key point here. Nevertheless, a most horrific thing happens to Dinah. And we shouldn't gloss over it there in verse 2. Dinah is the victim of a progression of brutality here. Really aggravated sexual assault there in verse 2. Seized, lay, humiliated. The uh, progression of these aggravating verbs. And we should be very conscious to say here that the Bible reports this detail as the Bible often reports the details of life in a fallen world without comment and without approval. This is a heinous evil. Sexual assault is wicked in every sense. And Dinah is a victim of this. And we should not engage ourselves in merely blaming or shaming Dinah. Still, Dinah was not where she should have been, but it's Jacob's responsibility, according to this text. Even more so since his reaction to the whole thing, when he hears of it, in verse 5, is he says nothing. 
It says there he holds his tongue. He holds his peace there in verse 5. Why? Is he silently calculating the appropriate response to an act of vengeance? No, it seems more likely that he's just waiting for his sons to come back so they can do something about it. This text presents Jacob not in silent, intent, calculating purpose, but rather, again, spiritual apathy about the well-being of his own daughter. Pathetically more likely, he's just apathetic. Jacob comes across as uncaring for his own daughter or the six sons born by Leah. Now let me just summarize the progression of the text here because the details of all of this are not the biggest point of the text. Nevertheless, it's important that we understand it here, this bulk of the narrative. Shechem's brutality transitions in his twisted mind towards some tender affection in his sight, but Dinah remains literally captive in his household. She's under captivity the entire text. She has to be rescued later on. She's a captive in his home. Dinah's brothers are not like their father. They're indignant in verse 7. Indignant. And then in verses 8-15, through 15, Shechem's father, Hamer, is the one who wants to seemingly make things right. Jacob makes no attempt to approach the situation, but sits back. And the offending party's father approaches Jacob instead with a plan essentially to unite them together and to provide your household and my household and your wives and our wives and my property, your property, and we'll make lands together and we'll be united into one people. Notice in Hamer's proposition that it's the very stipulations of God's covenant that God had promised to do for Israel. Here is Hamer saying, no, make your peace with me and I will provide you these things. Deceitfully, the brothers accept, but with a stipulation that all the men of Shechem get circumcised, that they take to themselves that they take to themselves the sign of the covenant as an inclusion in the people of God. That's what the sign of the covenant circumcision was, to, the, to visibly distinguish the people of God. And they say, we'll agree with you if you agree to these terms. And they had no intention, see that very clearly, the sons of Jacob had no intention whatsoever to extend the people of God by way of the application of this sign. They are manipulating spiritual things for the goal of genocide, not evangelism. They're not wanting to spread the knowledge of God to the people of Shechem. They are instead with a plan to kill them all with a vicious profaning of God's sacred ordinance for the purposes of their revenge. And then in verses 25 to 31, Simeon and Levi, the middle two oldest brothers of uh, Leah's sons, enact this genocidal revengeance upon the whole town. And then the remaining brothers swoop in in verse 27 to 29 to absolutely plunder the city so that what you're left with at the end is an utterly desolate picture of Shechem. And the people of God, by God's covenant, are supposed to be a blessing to the nations. And here they are bringing execution to Shechem. And where in the world is Jacob in the midst of all of this? He'd been present in the negotiations with Hamor, Shechem's father, but then he fades into the background, doesn't he? Until the very end, when after the genocide in verse 30, what's Jacob primarily concerned about? This isn't going to go well for me. Jacob says to his sons in verse 30, you brought trouble on me. 
Again, not a word of concern for Dinah or the injustice of the severity of the response. Common culture is lex talionis, an eye for an eye. This is not a just vengeance. This is a life for an eye, rather, in terms of enacting vengeance. And the desecration of the sign of God's covenant of circumcision, Jacob doesn't seem to give a rip about any of it. And yet his sons, seemingly, in verse 31, assume the moral high ground saying, this should not be. Should he treat our sister like a prostitute? And Jacob has nothing to say except to focus on himself. Now, as we pile here on top of Jacob in his uh, iniquity, keep your finger there in Genesis 34, but go forward into Genesis 49 quickly here, just momentarily, because it's not the case that Jacob totally overlooks this reality. In fact, it comes back in Genesis 49. And uh, by the way, this is where we're going to conclude our, our, our Genesis series of Jacob. Uh, after one more text, we'll go into Genesis 49 here. But look specifically at verses 5 through 7. Genesis 49 and verse 5, as Jacob addresses Simeon and Levi, the two who led the genocide. Genesis 49 verse 5 says, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul not come into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. That's referencing these details from Genesis 34. These boys are murderers. Fierce is their vengeance. Now, it's not the case that Jacob passes by it entirely, but as you go back to Genesis 34, it's clear now that Jacob has nothing to say. And this is a real shame, especially because it seemed like Jacob's life, as we're reading throughout the, the pages of Genesis, it seems like he's really on an upward trend, right? It seems like he's making strides and elevating and increasing, growing in wisdom and spiritual maturity, just like every one of us hopes to do, making strides, making advancements, ascending, and here is this massive, massive failure on behalf of the patriarch. An utter regression of spiritual maturity, isn't it? You know, I said earlier, Jacob's a real scoundrel, and he is. But what's Jacob's big problem, ultimately? What is Jacob's real issue? Remember when he was born, he was born grabbing Esau's heel. His name, Jacob, means deceiver. It means heel grabber. It means twister. Jacob is a man who won't shoot it straight. Jacob is a man who will not walk the line and stay on the line. If it's convenient to him to go this way, he will. Even if it means disobedience. If it's better momentarily for him to go that way in disobedience, he'll go that way. It doesn't matter so long as it's well for Jacob in Jacob's own sense. Jacob is a deceiver. Jacob is a man who is not straightforward. Jacob's life is a life of halfway obedience. And halfway obedience is always disobedience. Halfway obedience is always disobedience, and this leads to disaster. When I walked in this morning here to the sanctuary, knowing the temperature outside, I wanted to make sure the air conditioning was on. And somebody, probably a, a, a well-deserving trustee, had already turned the air conditioning on. And you're thankful that they did, right? But the heat was left on. 
air conditioning, heat, at the same time competing with one another. I see some of you just, yeah, it happens. And forgive the use, the apt use of the illustration that these things wrestle against one another and can't make up their minds on what temperature it should be. So too in Jacob's life, he can't make up his mind. Heating, air conditioning, obedience, disobedience, and they're wrestling with each other. And so too oftentimes in your life and mine, right? Want it my way? I know God's way is good. I'll go his way, I'll go my way. And they wrestle and compete with each other. And here's the point. This is Jacob. This is Jacob. The third generation patriarch. He is in one sense one of the main characters of Scripture. And he is an abject spiritual failure. So what to say? Well, it's disgrace, isn't it? It's disgrace. He's not straightforward. And yet... And yet, this is Jacob, a patriarch of the faith, and not one of the main characters of Scripture, actually, because there's only one main character, and it is his good news of grace and love and mercy that we need to feel in this chapter, because if you're like me, there's a lot of weight here. What do we say, not just about disgrace, but now about grace? Because as we interact with people like Jacob, or people in your life that you identify as twisters and schemers and people not straightforward and people who have deceived you. You know, if it were up to us, oftentimes we think to ourselves, good grief, when is, when is God just going to wash His hands of Jacob? When is He just going to give up on this twister of a schemer who can't ever seem to get it right? It's what we would do, isn't it? Because we think of people all the time that there are people who wrong us and we think to ourselves they're going to get what's coming to them and the sooner the better. And if it were up to me, I would have delivered that vengeance yesterday. And we think to ourselves, you know, God really shouldn't be gracious to people as disgraceful as this. How can God possibly overlook the sin and the wickedness of Genesis 34, from front to back, beginning to end, how can God possibly overlook sin as grievous as this? If you were in the judgment seat, what would you do? Well, let me say to you that God doesn't overlook the sin of Genesis 34. God doesn't overlook the sin of the violation of Dinah. God doesn't overlook the sin of the retribution and the genocide that follows as a result of it. God gathers up the sin of Genesis 34. He gathers up the sins of the Old Testament. He gathers up the judgment that is reserved for it. And all of that judgment that is due to sin falls upon a son of Jacob. And the son of Jacob is a son of Isaac. He's the son of Abraham. He's the son of David. All that judgment falls upon the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, who bears the sin of His people, justly deserved by them and yet received by Him. God's judgment is met out upon Christ for the sin of Genesis 34, the sins of this dark chapter of Genesis, the many sins of Jacob and indeed your many sins and mine. God meets out His judgment for our sins upon Christ. My failures, my half-hearted obedience, my disinterest and my profaning of spiritual things and yours, just like Jacob's. Treating sacred things 
with profanity and being okay with it. God meets out His judgment upon this because God is faithful to His promises, not because of me, not because of you, not because of Jacob, but in spite of me and you and Jacob. And Jacob needs to learn this lesson of how the Gospel works, and so do you and I. Because in God's covenant grace and promises that He has given to Jacob, He has said to Jacob, Jacob, I will be your God and you will wander, but I will bring you back. You will stray and I will correct you, but you will learn to walk in my ways. You will disobey me, but I will not forsake you. That's what God says in the Gospel, isn't it? And part of the blessing of the covenant is that He has promised to both bless and keep. And yes, of course, part of that blessing is His, the pardoning of our sins, but it is also the lifelong process of straightening us out so that we would quit it with the heat and the air conditioning at the same time. So that we would quit it with the half-hearted obedience and instead give ourselves wholeheartedly to obedience. Rather than saying, I'll walk my way these days and on these days I'll walk the Lord's way, crooked Jacob has to learn willful obedience. And it's going to take him being melted and purified and made new. And that's what God is doing in your life too. Not only the pardoning of your sins, but refining you and changing you so that the struggling disobedience is changed into willful and loving obedience Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. And friends, the Lord's Supper stands as a sign and seal of that gracious promise that there is a Savior for sinners who are in need of a Savior. Sinners like Jacob. Sinners like the sons of Jacob. You should ask yourself the question as we conclude now in preparation for the Supper. Just... How gracious is God's grace? How gracious? And the answer is, is it's gracious enough for sinners like Jacob. And it's gracious enough for sinners like you and me and us. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray now that uh, you would take your word and seal it to our hearts, even the darkness of this chapter, to see the light of your gospel grace. And so, Lord, Bless us as your people that you might be at work in us to straighten us out by the grace of your gospel. Prepare our hearts now, Lord, to come to this table to receive the sign and seal of your covenant mercy in and through your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit Edgington epc.org. May God bless and keep you.